Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this church here in the New Testament that Paul wrote to. Um, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to learn the valuable lessons that he was trying to impart to them. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would apply these truths to our church and to our individual lives. Lord, we'll thank you for all that you do in our hearts during this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated one more time. In this series uh, called Marks of a Healthy Church, what we're doing is we're looking at what God's Word teaches us about what a healthy church ought to look like. Several years ago, there was a church in Orange County, California, named Saddleback Church, which coincidentally enough was uh, about 20 minutes from the church that my wife and I and our family served in uh, there in Newport Beach. Uh, Saddleback was in Lake Forest, California. And uh, Saddleback, of course, is pastored by the very famous Rick Warren, who is the author of Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. This pastor decided it would be a great idea to go out into the community, not to give out the gospel, no, but to ask them what they wanted in a church. So in reality, they went from door to door with a survey card and then tailored their church to the felt needs of the unsaved. Wow. Does that raise any red flags in anybody's minds? It ought to. Because the church is not ours to do with as we wish. Cornerstone Baptist Church, by the way, is not my church. Yes, I am called to be the pastor, but that does not make this church Eric Johnson's church whatsoever. Can I also say this? Cornerstone Baptist Church is not even our church. It doesn't belong to us. This church belongs to the Lord, and we would do well not to ask unsaved people what should be in a church or what a church church ought to look like, but we need to look into the very Word of God. This needs to be the guidebook. This needs to be the standard on what a church looks like because uh, because it's the Lord's church, and this is his instruction booklet. So um, that's what we're going to do, and that's what we've been doing in this series. And I just want to remind us that that's... The philosophy here at Cornerstone, it's not our church to do with what, what, what we want. And, and look, I'm not trying to purposely, as an unsaved person here, I don't want to purposely offend them and make them feel horrible. And I don't want that. But I also want to make sure that I'm pleasing the one who this church belongs to. Because one day I'm going to have to give an answer to him, uh, not necessarily to uh, Saddleback Sam or Cornerstone Charlie, however you want to call it. All right. Um, so the church is, is the Lord's, and, and we need to remember that as we figure out, what is our church going to look like? What kind of church should we be? Well, we ought to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want our church to look like? Because this is your church. Amen. All right, so we come to tonight to the uh, church at Philippi. And, and uh, to get a little background on this church, um, we'll be back here in Philippians 1, but I'd like you to, uh, Philippians 1, and I'd like you to flip over to Acts chapter number 16, okay? 
So flip over to Acts chapter 16, then we'll flip back to Philippians, all right? You see what I did there? Philippians, flip over, okay. If you have to explain a joke, it ceases to be funny, and uh, I will take that out of my notes, because that's that's not funny. Okay, Acts chapter number 16, that is the dad joke of the night, all right? Uh, Hopefully there won't be too many more. Actually, I think there is a couple more in there. (laughs) Okay, Um, Acts chapter 16, uh, look in verse number 7, we'll pick it up here. We'll just kind of read down through some of this because this is the this is the first time Paul uh, makes his way through this place called Philippi, verse number seven. And as they were come to, uh, and I might not say all these uh, towns properly, but uh, Messia, they said to go into Bithynia, but the spirit suffered them not. And they passing by uh, Mysia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Do you remember this story? Um, and uh, this is really kind of how the church at Philippi kind of was, was brought about. And it was the Lord saying, hey, this church needs to be started. So verse 10, and after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. That's a good response. When the Lord presses something upon our hearts and he tells us to do something, we shouldn't you know, put it on our to-do list for one day. It would be great to get around to doing this. It's something we ought to do immediately. Um, So they immediately endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to that place, Sam Ophacra, and the next day to Nicopolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. Now on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it, it came to pass, verse number 16, uh, there's some things that took place. And um, let's go to, jump down to verse number 19. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them in the marketplace, then on the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. So they were making an impact with the gospel. And people were getting saved, and people were starting to talk and and, uh, and it was starting to affect people's businesses that shouldn't have been opened in the first place. And verse number 21, and teach customs. They teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates ran off their clothes, commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison made their feet fast in the stocks. And I'll read one more verse here and make some comments. And at, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So uh, you, we're familiar with some of these stories when we go through the book of Acts. Well, this was all taking place in this city called Philippi. And, uh, and Lydia here comes to know the Lord as her Savior and, and uh, her in her house too. And, and I, I think this is really where the church began is in Lydia's household in, in her house, that was probably where they met. The church building was Lydia's house. And, uh, and, then, 
and then they were cast into prison. And then most of us know the story of what takes place uh, in this prison story, how the jailer and his family end up getting saved. And so as Paul is writing to this church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, these are the people he's writing to. These are the people on his mind, on his heart, as he's writing this letter. So he's writing to Lydia. He's writing to Mr. Jailer, uh, whatever his name was, and Mrs. Jailer, and their Jailer Jr. and Jailer <laughs> Little Jailer Et, and all, you know, that's who he's writing to as, as he's uh, writing this book of Philipp, uh, Philippians. And so let's flip back to uh, Philippians, okay? And so just to kind of get us in our mind, kind of who he's writing to and, and how this church uh, was started, and, and Paul came back to visit this church, and he just had a love for these people, and, and, and he was very close to them. And now I can't find Philippians. Great. Okay, there it is. Um, now, the book of Philippians was Paul's most affectionate of his letters. Um, as he writes, you know, Ephesians and Galatians and all of these epistles, this is the most affectionate of the bunch because he, he dearly loved these, these people and this, this church family. And tonight we're going to look at five marks of a healthy church from this book of the Bible. And, and uh, some things he was praising and some things he was trying to address. And uh, we're going to take all of those and, and figure out what a healthy church looks like from the book of Philippians. And it's not an exhaustive list. We could probably take many, many other things from this passage or from this book of the Bible. But we're going to just stick with the five that uh, we're going to talk about tonight. So let's jump into it. Number one, a healthy church is appreciated. A healthy church is appreciated. Verse number three, Paul, as he's writing this book, he says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So he appreciated this church. This church was a blessing in his life, and I'm sure that he was a blessing in this church's life, but, but definitely as he thought about this group of believers, he, every time he thought of them, he just like, man, thank you, Lord, for the church at Philippi. They're just a great bunch of believers, and I'm just so thankful for them. Now, whenever our community thinks of Cornerstone Baptist Church, are they thankful for our church? Are they thankful for our ministry? Um, the people who have attended here and uh, maybe have moved away, the Lord has called them elsewhere, and are they thankful for the ministry of Cornerstone Baptist Church? I hope the answer is yes. Um, a healthy church ought to be uh, appreciated, or a church ought to be appreciated. That is a healthy uh, mark of a church. And I'd ask this question, um, and I I would answer it in the affirmative here. Do you appreciate the ministry of Cornerstone Baptist Church? I, I would hope the answer is yes. I hope that God has done some work in your life here at Cornerstone. Um, God has brought some growth in your Christian life, and uh, He's developed you here. Uh, some of you have been coming for just a few weeks. Some of you have been coming for a few decades. So uh, whether you've been coming for a short or long time, I, I believe that the Lord has used this this church in your life, and um, I hope that you appreciate it. I hope that you appreciate the ministry here, and uh, I'm kind of setting you up because if you read my bulletin article this, this morning, uh, I asked you to leave a review on Facebook and or Google, and I mentioned it last Sunday night, um, and I'm going to mention it again in my message this morning. If, you're, if you've been touched, if the Lord's touched your life uh, here at Cornerstone Baptist Church, I would encourage you to uh, 
show that Thanksgiving and, and give a little bit of a testimony on, on these different platforms as I believe it, it could be used by the Lord to encourage others to uh, come and see what the Lord is doing here. Um, that's not my main point on that. It's just a little side note, a little reference to my bulletin article this morning. Uh, but how are we going to be a church that uh, is appreciated? Well, be someone that people appreciate. How do we get to that? How do we get to that point in our lives? Well, I would say this, by how you love others, by how you love others. Think about the people in your life that every time you think of them, you just say, I am thankful for that person. I'm thankful for the influence in their life. I'm thankful for how they love me and um, were a blessing to me. And then, and then replicate it to others. Um, what kind of things can you do to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because those are the things that are going to cause people to appreciate you and ultimately cause people to appreciate our church. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of a lengthy story I want to share with you that kind of illustrates this point about somebody making a difference in someone's life. And, and all, of us can, all of us can think back to people in our life who have really impacted us. And, uh, and I know God wants to use us here at Cornerstone to impact one another and also those who haven't been here yet who are yet to come in. Um, it's a story uh, many years ago of an elementary teacher. Her name was Mrs. Thompson. As she stood in the front of her fifth grade class on her very first day of school, she told the children a lie. Like most teachers, she looked at her students and said that she loved them all the same. But that was impossible because there in the front row, slumped in a seat, was a little boy named Teddy Stoddard. Mrs. Thompson had watched Teddy the year before and noticed that he didn't play well with the other children, that his clothes were messy and that he constantly needed a bath. And Teddy could be unpleasant as well. It got to the point where Mrs. Thompson would actually take delight in marking his papers with a broad red pen, making bold X's and then putting a big F at the top of his papers. At the school where Mrs. Thompson taught, she was required to review each child's past records, and she put Teddy's record off until the very last one. She didn't want to look at it. However, when she reviewed this file, she was in for a surprise. Teddy's first grade teacher wrote, Teddy is a bright child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly and has good manners. He is a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well liked by his classmates, but he is troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much, much interest and his home life will soon affect him if some steps aren't taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn and doesn't show much interest in school. He doesn't have many friends, and sometimes he even sleeps in class. By now, Mrs. Thompson realized the problem, and she was ashamed of herself. She felt even worse when her students brought her Christmas presents wrapped in beautiful ribbons, bright paper, except for Teddy's. His present, which was clumsily wrapped in the heavy brown paper that he got from the grocery bag. Mrs. Thompson took pains to open it in the middle of the other presents. Some of the children started to laugh when she found a rhinestone bracelet with some of the stones missing and a bottle that was one quarter full of perfume. But she stifled the children's laughter when she examined how pretty the bracelet was, putting it on and 
dabbing some of the perfume on her wrist. And Teddy Stoddard stayed after school that day just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, today you smell just like my mom used to. After the children left, she cried for at least an hour. And that very day, she quit re- teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic. And she, instead, she began to teach children. Mrs. Thompson paid particular attention to Teddy. She worked with him. His, his mind seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. By the end of the year, Teddy had become one of the smartest children in the class. And despite her lie that she would love all the children the same, Teddy became one of her teacher's pets. A year later, she found a note under her door from Teddy telling her that she was still the best teacher he had ever had in his whole life. Six years went by before she got another note from Teddy. He then wrote that he had finished high school, third in his class, and she was still the best teacher he had ever had in her whole life, in his whole life. Four years after that, she got another letter saying that while things had been tough at times, he'd stayed in school and stuck with it and would soon graduate from college with the highest of honors. He assured Mrs. Thompson that she was still the best and favorite teacher he had ever had in his entire life. Then four more years passed and yet another letter came. This time, he explained that after he got his bachelor's degree, he decided to go a little further. The letter explained that she was still the best and favorite teacher he ever had, but now his name was a little longer. The letter was signed Theodore F. Stoddard, M.D. The story doesn't end there. You see, there was yet another letter that that spring. Teddy said that he'd met this girl and was going to be married. He explained that his father had died a couple years ago, and he was wondering if Mrs. Thompson might agree to sit in the place at the wedding that was usually reserved for the mother of the groom. Of course, Mrs. Thompson did. And guess what? She wore that bracelet, the one with several rhinestones missing. And she made sure she was wearing the perfume that Teddy remembered his mother wearing on their last Christmas together. They hugged each other. And Dr. Stoddard whispered in Mrs. Thompson's ear, Thank you, Mrs. Thompson, for believing in me. Thank you so much for making me feel important and showing me that I could make a difference. Mrs. Thompson, with tears in her eyes, whispered back. She said, Teddy, you have it all wrong. You were the one who taught me that I could make a difference. I didn't really know how to teach until I met you. See the difference someone can make in someone else's life. Would to God that would, there would be uh, people in this room that would make a difference in someone else's life like what we just read. And not just to affect them for the rest of this life here on earth, but to affect them for all of eternity. And then we can be a church that is appreciated like the church at Philippi. As Paul thought about them, he said, every time I think of you, just can't help but have a Thanksgiving session with the Lord. Can't help but say, Lord, thank you for this church family that you have put in my life. Yes, I was privileged to be a part of this founding of this church, but this church has made an impact in my life as well. And I would hope and pray that Cornerstone Baptist Church would be a church that is making a difference in people's lives. 
So a healthy church is appreciated. Secondly, a healthy church has joy. A healthy church has joy. Look in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 1. So we were in 1 verse 3. Now let's look in chapter 3 verse 1. And here Paul says to this church, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, can somebody uh, remind me where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was on a resort, drinking his favorite juice. (laughs) They're about ready to go snorkeling, right? That's not where Paul was when he wrote this letter. No, he was in prison. He was uh, there in his, he was in bonds. And he mentions that many times in, in this book. He reminds them of, their bond, of his bonds. He reminds them of the fact that, hey, I'm in a prison cell. And yet this, this, is, a, this is considered the book of joy. Interesting. That we can have joy in the midst of difficulty like what Paul was experiencing. So he was in prison and yet he encourages his church to make the choice to rejoice. No matter what life brings, choose to rejoice in the Lord. As he was saying, look, I want this church, I want you as a church to be a joyful church. As I was thinking about this, again, as I mentioned, who was part of this church? Well, that, that jailer was part of this church. That jailer there that, uh, if you remember the story, as he gets, as that earthquake happens, everybody starts running out of prison and he thinks, well, that's it. My life is over. And so he, you know, he was suicidal. He said, I need to go and and, uh, run myself through with this sword because he took out a sword and he was about ready to end it all. So he had kind of a messed up life. He ends up getting radically saved by the grace of God. And, and as, as Paul's writing this book, I can't, I can't help but thinking of this, of this jailer sitting there reading this or, or hearing it read. And, uh, and, and he was thinking, rejoice in the Lord. I, I can't help but him thinking he went back in his mind to that glorious night when he got saved and, and, uh, and how Paul and Silas exhibited this very, uh, this very attribute of, of joy. There as they were placed into prison, by the way, they weren't like coddled into prison and saying, you know, okay, everything okay? You got all your needs met? Before they were placed into prison, the Bible says they were beaten. It wasn't just a slap on the wrist, you bad boys preaching the gospel. Why are you doing that? These guys were beaten. They were placed into prison. And then the next verse says, and at midnight, they sang praises unto God. So they exhibited joy in the midst of great heartache and great difficulty. And as the jailer was reading this, I'm I'm sure he was thinking, Paul knows what he's talking about here. I remember the last time Paul was in jail, and I was there. And I saw his joy. It wasn't based on how things were going. It was based on who his God was. And so as a church, we need to have joy. When things are going well, when the bills are getting paid, when the offerings are good, when people are coming in and, uh, and the spirit is exciting, it's easy to have joy in those moments. But what if the offerings start going down? What if people start leaving and 
Are we going to still have joy? Well, if we're having joy in circumstances, it's going to be hard to have joy in those moments. And that's why Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in not the circumstances, not the things going on around you, but rejoice in the Lord. Because he never changes. And he's worthy to rejoice in. Philippians 4.4, later in this book, this letter that he writes to this church, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Something we need to make the choice to do. Psalm 9 and verse number 2, the psalmist said, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praises to thy name, O thou most high. James encourages his readers, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. It's easy to count it all joy when you fall into a promotion, into a raise, into hearing some good news, but when you fall into a difficult situation, that takes a little more spiritual discipline and grit. Again, we need to remember who our uh, target is. Is it the, or who we're basing our uh, joy on? Is it the circumstances? Is it things going on around me? Or is it in the unchanging great God that we serve? Um, Ron Hamilton wrote a song called uh, Rejoice in the Lord, and I'd like to read the lyrics to you at this time. He wrote, God never moves without purpose or plan. When trying His servant and molding a man, give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness He giveth a song. Some of you may know Ron Hamilton as Patch the Pirate. He lost his eye due to cancer, a rare eye cancer. Several years later, one of his children, who was part of the Patch the Pirate uh, CDs and, and cassettes, um, one of the part of the family, uh, took his own life. He still sings the song, though. The next verse says, I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of my master that day, then peace came and tears fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best, and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit will I bear. And the chorus says, Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take, for when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. See, even when we go through difficult things, we can still have joy. Oh, rejoice in the Lord, is the encouragement here. Charles Spurgeon once said, there is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful. Remember that as kids? Time to take your medicine. And they tried to make it taste good. Bubblegum taste, cherry, grape. No matter how they taste, it was nasty nonetheless, right? You try to make it taste good. It's never good. You like the, you like the taste of medicine? Yeah, okay, good. I thought I was like, yeah, no kid likes the taste of medicine. Most medicines are distasteful, but this 
which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. This blessed joy is very contagious. One little dollop of spirit brings a kind of plague into the house. Um, One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. So let's have the encouragement here for us as Cornerstone Baptist Church. It's for us to have true, genuine joy. By the way, not just plastic or pretend joy that we paste on and and put on when we drive into the church parking lot. Oh, it's time to put on our joyful face. But something that is real and genuine, that when we come into the house of God, that we have this joy that's outflowing from our relationship with God. We need to have true joy in the Lord here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. And that starts with each of us individually, making sure that this is part of who we are. And so Paul here spends quite a bit of time talking to this church about joy and the importance of it in the church. And we better take heed if we want to be a church that is healthy indeed. So thirdly, let's move on. Thirdly, a healthy church is united. A healthy church is united. Philippians 1.27, if you can kind of just jump over to there. Here Paul says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast. Here it is, in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, We're to have one spirit, one mind. Um, If we go over to chapter 2, verse number 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So we're to have of one spirit, one accord. And here I'm supposed to insert an obligatory Honda joke right here on the one accord. But I'm not going to do it. No more dad jokes tonight. So there it is. You can rest assured, I don't think I have any others in the notes. It's not a guarantee that they won't pop out out of the notes. So chapter 2, verse 2, here he's telling them to uh, have the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And, and, then, in, and then in chapter 4, in verse number 2, here is one of the reasons he wrote this book, honestly. Several reasons that he wrote this book, but one of them was right here in this one verse alone. Chapter 4, verse 2, I, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Evidently, there was some quarrel between these two ladies in the church. There was some division in this church, and it was between these two ladies. There was some tension between Sister Eudeus and Sister Syntyche. One liked the wallpaper color, and the other didn't. I don't know what the the issue was, but there was some type of uh, tension in the room. God desires that there would not be tension in the house of God, that there would be a a spirit of unity, a spirit uh, of harmony. So as Paul, go back to chapter 2 if you would. So he he mentions this verse in in verse 2, being of one mind, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And then 
And then it's just a couple verses later, he, he goes into one of the most important passages in all the New Testament, the kenosis passage. Verse number five, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he uses Jesus Christ as an illustration of this church saying, look, Jesus humbled himself. We need to humble ourselves as well. So uh, if we're going to be united, it's going to take some humility. It's going to take some uh, willingness to not get my way all the time. Someone wrote this, and I thought this was excellent when it comes to church. They wrote, I have always loved math, and I don't know that I would agree with that. I haven't always loved math. I do enjoy math more than I enjoy some subjects. But one great thing about math, it is concrete. It has rules. Unlike grammar, there are not hundreds of exceptions and and exceptions to the exceptions (laughs) Uh, in grammar and in uh, even spelling and uh, different words in the English language that, you know, if you were trying to learn English as a, as a second language, there would be a lot of confusion. Um, so two plus two in math is always four. Yet even in math, there is a negative. Adding and subtracting are basic and needed. Multiplication is fun and is exciting. Division, however, is not so good. And that is especially true in the church. In the church, division is never, ever good. There's a place for addition in the church, right? Adding to God's word is wrong according to Revelation chapter 22, but there are still so many good additions to be made in the church. It was and is always a blessing to have members added to the body of Christ. I like reading in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I like that. Um, but division... I'm sorry, uh, adding to our faith also is necessary and good, yet in the church, division is never, ever good. There's a place for subtraction in the church as well. Taking away from God's word is absolutely wrong, so there's no place for that. But there's still so many good subtractions made in the church. Through Christ, we can have our sins taken away. Uh, The veil that separated us from God has been taken away. The old covenant was taken away for a better one. Yet in the church, division is still never, ever good. There's a place for multiplication in the church. It's great when the word of God is multiplied according to Acts 12, 24. It's great that knowledge of the word multiplies grace and peace according to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's great that God can take what little we can offer and multiply it to great things. And through Christ, mercy, peace, and love are multiplied. Yet in the church, division is never, ever good. And I want to encourage us as a church to never get to the point where we're doing long division or even short division. You remember those long division problems in school, how much fun they were? I'm telling you, they're less fun in a church. And let's not go there. Look, God's given us marching orders to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we honestly do not have time to be putting out fires in our own church. We don't have time. It's a waste of time. It's, it's counterproductive to uh, have division in the church because it hinders the mission from being accomplished. God's desire, and mine as well, for Cornerstone Baptist Church is that we would be a united front as we fulfill our purpose as a church 
which is to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the sinners. And let's be willing to humble ourselves as Christ did as well and not always force our own will or, or way. We talked about in Sunday school in my class this morning about stubbornness. And uh, I mentioned that I'm five-eighths German. And, you know, Germans are kind of notorious for their stubbornness. And uh, they kind of pride themselves on being stubborn. I'm just stubborn because I'm a German. Well, we were reminded in the Bible that the Bible calls stubbornness is as idolatry. And it's not a good thing. It's not praised in Scripture. God doesn't say, you're stubborn, oh, you're German, oh, well, I'll give you a pass because you're German. God says, no, look, don't be stubborn, don't always force your own will, be willing to humble yourself. If we're going to be united, it's going to require a little humility. I encourage all of us to adopt that in our lives. Let's, uh, let's, Let's continue on this evening. Number four. Number four, a healthy church takes care of God's servants. A healthy church takes care of God's servants. For the next two, for this and the last one, we're going to be in Philippians chapter number four. So if you want to turn over there, Philippians chapter number four, verse number 10 is where this, this thought comes from. Here Paul is saying, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were careful, but you lacked opportunity. So... Paul here, one of, the, so one of the reasons he wrote this book was to address the issue going on there with these two ladies, Eudeus and Syntyche. But he was also writing as kind of a thank you note for this church taking care of him financially. And it is important for a church to care for, the, for God's servants. First uh, Timothy chapter number 5, verse number 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. And I'm not saying this, I'm not going through this point really to talk about taking care of the pastor, although I think that that is a very important part of a church. Um, It's it's obviously a little awkward to be mentioning all that. Um, I would just simply like to say this. Thank you for how well you take care of our family. Uh, We are grateful We are blessed beyond measure to be here, and uh, we simply want to say thank you for how you do indeed take care of us. And that is a mark of a healthy church, that you take care of God's servants. But the reason I bring this up is because we're about to have five different families come through our church in two and a half weeks during our missions conference, and they as well are God's servants. And Paul here was acting as somewhat of a missionary, and he was... Uh, acting as someone who is coming by and being a blessing to this church. And, and these five families that are going to be coming um, here at, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we want to do what we can to be a blessing and to take care of God's servants. One of the things I wanted to mention to our church family, in case you didn't know how well uh, or how we, we care for missions, um, we are... One of the things that drew us to this church is their missions program. That was one of the more attractive parts about coming to this church and uh, being a part of this ministry because God cares about missions. Um, he had one son, and he made him a missionary. And so missions is important to the Lord, 
and it, and it needs to be important to a church and to Christians as well. And this church has been, for, for as far as I know, uh, has been taking all, um, all that comes in through the offering given to the general fund, 10% of that goes to the missions program. 10% of it goes to reaching the world with the gospel of Christ. So the church, in many ways, tithes to missions. I think that's excellent. I think that shows the heartbeat behind this church. And that shows, of course, the Lord's heartbeat as well. The church tithes and gives to missions. I think it's excellent. And uh, as we have these missionaries come through uh, this in a couple weeks during our missions conference and as they come through here and there um, afterwards, let's do what we can to be a blessing and to take care of uh, these servants of God as they come through our church. Because a healthy church takes care of God's servant, just like the church at Philippi took care of the Apostle Paul as he came through. Let's move on to the last thought here. A healthy church, this kind of goes along with it a little bit, but I think it's a little bit of a separate thought. And that is, a healthy church is generous. A healthy church is generous. Philippians 4 and verse number 14 is where we pick up with this. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. And again, this is a reference to what Paul was dealing with. And they sent a financial gift to help the servant of God here. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. He said, you're the only ones that hooked me up with some love financially. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you for that. And then it says, for even in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, he sent once and again unto my necessity. He said, not because I desire a gift. Look, I'm not trying to get rich and I'm not looking for handouts and I'm not, I don't want to be a big charity. Uh, but he said, I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He said, everything that I'm doing, because you had a part in keeping me going financially, you're, you have a part in that. You, you sent that ahead, and that helped me do the work that I was called to do. And as a result, the, the fruit that, that comes to, to being and, and, and comes to fruition, uh, is you get credit for that. That's pretty amazing. And he says, but look, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received of Aphroditus, the things which were sent from you, in order, sweet-smelling, sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And then he shares this wonderful promise. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. But I want to remind us that that promise is in the context of giving. A lot of times we kind of take this verse out of context, and it's a good verse, I suppose we can a little bit, but we need to remember the context here that it is, this promise is somewhat conditional. Uh, we need to uh, make sure that we're remembering that we can't expect God to supply all of our need according to his riches and glory if we're not, if we're hoarding and being selfish. Um, this was given to a church that was gracious and generous with who they were. Um, Hold your place here and, and turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians 8.1. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 and verse number 1. I'm getting close to the end, so hang with me for just a few more moments. 2 Corinthians 8.1. Here Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. 
And then he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we do, wit to, um, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, who was, what, what, what churches were in Macedonia? Well, I'll just say this. The church at Philippi was in Macedonia. And then in verse number 2, How that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. And he goes on down and talks about how they gave uh, not only money, but they also gave of themselves uh, to the Lord. And, and uh, he talks about this church at Philippi. We can flip back over to Philippians 4. But he says, look, there was a church there in Macedonia that wasn't rich, that didn't have it all together, but they still noticed the need and they gave, not out of their abundance, but even out of their poverty, they still gave. And he's referring to this church at Philippi. They were generous in spite of, in spite of their lack of resources. They still were generous. And I want to encourage our church to be like that. But it's only going to happen is if we're individually like that. Remember, God's attitude was one of, of generosity as well. James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God likes to give good gifts to us. And when God gave, He gave His very best. He didn't give His leftovers. Uh, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He could have given so many things. He could have chosen another way to reach this world. He could have chosen another way, perhaps, uh, to uh, provide salvation. But instead, he chose to give his very best. Now, you might give to charities, and that's, that's great. But please, don't forget to give to God through the local church. It's his plan. God doesn't promise this verse in uh, verse number 19 is not given to those who give to charity. Though giving to charity is a healthy thing, and, and if you like to do that, by all means, continue. But don't forget to neglect, don't neglect to give to God through the local church because that's His plan, and there's a lot of promises and blessings to those who give in that way. Uh, Luke 6.38 is a, uh, most of us know this verse. I'm going to turn over there because I always mess up when I actually try to quote this one. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Proverbs chapter number 3, we heard a couple. Somebody said, who was it that said uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Over here. There it is, right there. Excellent job with that tonight. Proverbs 3, later in that chapter, verse number 9, says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. You see, uh, when we give, God promises to give back to us. It's a great, it's awesome that God would do that. Captain Levy, a, a believer from Philadelphia, was pretty wealthy, and he was once asked how he could give so much to the Lord's work and still possess great wealth, the captain replied, oh, well, as I shovel it out, he shovels it in, and the Lord has a bigger shovel. And that's so true. Um, just test that out. 
um, and the Lord will show you that uh, He does bless generosity. And again, we need to be a generous church, and I think we are, uh, but we need to continue in that. But it's only going to be as if each of us are generous to the Lord, to the Lord's work. So as we conclude tonight, uh, let me ask the question as I've asked uh, each, each message as we've gone through this. How are we doing? More importantly, how are you doing in these areas? Are you someone that appreciate? Are you someone that when they think of you, they just, I just appreciate that person. Because not only of who they are, but what they do. They, they show love. Are we and are you a person of joy? No matter what's going on in life, do you still have joy in the midst of difficulty? In the midst when uh, you're in, maybe we'll put quotes around prison. You may not be in a physical little prison, but maybe you feel like this is, this is not a pleasant situation. Can you still sing praises to God at midnight? Are you one to... When it comes to the church, are you uh, helping this spirit of unity or are you fighting against the spirit of unity? And I don't know of any situations, so I'm not trying to address any situation in particular. But I want to encourage us all to maintain the spirit of unity as we go forward because we have so much to accomplish. And we don't have time to be dealing with little petty issues. Let's just be of the same mind in the Lord. Um, and then taking care of God's servants. Let's put a priority on those who come through and making sure that we're taking good care of them. And then let's be generous as well. And I hope these thoughts have been helpful.